as a pastor, it is sometimes necessary to lay a foundation to help your congregation understand or perhaps to respond to things that happen in the church, and that is the case today with a disappointing announcement that we'll be making at the time of church discipline. And looking toward that end and dealing with my own grief and feelings about those matters and yours as I anticipate them as well, we'd like to consider today the theme of strength through disappointment. And we turn in God's word to hear 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 to 18. Please turn with me to 2 Corinthians, the fourth chapter in your Bibles. We begin the reading of God's word at the seventh verse. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the exceeding greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. We are pressed on every side, yet not straightened, perplexed, yet not unto despair, pursued, yet not forsaken, smitten down, yet not destroyed, always bearing about in the body the dying of Jesus, that the life also of Jesus may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. But having the same spirit of faith, according to that which is written, I believed and therefore did I speak, we also believe and therefore also we speak, knowing that he that raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also with Jesus and shall present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that the grace, being multiplied through the many, may cause the thanksgiving to abound unto the glory of God. Wherefore, we faint not, but though our outward man is decaying, yet our inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is for the moment, worketh for us more and more exceedingly an eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And thus far the reading of God's word. Clay jars. I just want you to remember that. Clay jars. When we get done this morning, we'll be aware of the significance of that expression, clay jars. In order to begin, though, I'd like to talk to you about different kinds of disappointment this morning. I'd like to do an anatomy of disappointment. We all know disappointment. We all feel it in one way or another in our lives, readily, continually, many times and in many ways. We know what it is to be disappointed. First of all, we know the disappointment of unfulfilled desires particular wishes that we may have or plans that we have that just don't work out. And some of this is very minor. No place for a sermon. I was hoping for Mexican food for lunch. I'm not going to get it. So I'm disappointed. You may have wished to go to a Laker playoff game. Tickets didn't materialize. You couldn't go. You're disappointed. Uh, Then there are things that are a little more important than that. You wished that you would have gotten a new watch for Christmas, but didn't work out. You had plans to remodel your home, never got around to it, or if you're like us, just don't have the money to do what you want. Some people regret the fact that they had wanted to see an aging relative before he or she died, and that didn't happen. That brings disappointment. Maybe you were looking forward to a vacation at Yosemite this year. 
You had to settle for Orange County. Couldn't work out. Sometimes we have plans for a new business venture. <clears throat> you may have wanted to open a store at the mall. You opened it, and it failed. And boy, you're disappointed about that. You perhaps have been looking forward to a promotion at work. It didn't work out. And that puts you into a fit of depression. We all know what it is then to be disappointed because of unfulfilled desires, from the most trivial and minor to some that are pretty heartbreaking. But I think there's another kind of disappointment that we experience in life, and that's the disappointment of bad news. Bad news that may not have any personal relevance to us, really. No background against which our despair is to be understood. It's just we're disappointed that things are the way they are. I'm disappointed and depressed over continuing war and civil unrest in foreign lands. When I pick up the paper and I find I do that less and less because I have happier summer days when I don't know what's going on in the world. Do you have that feeling? I just, it's just uncomfortable. It's disappointing to read the paper. And of course, uh, bringing it a little closer to home, there's dissatisfaction with the political conduct that I see in the United States of America. I get really down about that. Some days I'm quite disappointed when I read the way our senators and, uh, and our judges and other people behave and the positions they take. Uh, you may have known recently the distress over reports of freeway violence in Southern California here. So there are things that may not directly bear on us, and yet they make us a little unhappy. They make us down. They disappoint us. Life isn't what it's supposed to be. There's a third kind of disappointment we can think of as well, the disappointment of unrealized hopes for others or unrealized hopes about general circumstances. This may not be a desire or a plan that I have regarding myself, but I still get disappointed when I see things in the lives of others or I see things in the circumstances around me that aren't the way I'd like them to be. We, you know what it's like to want the weather to be nice for a picnic and then you're disappointed. You get a cloudy day and the picnic's not as much fun. But we know also what it is to be disappointed that our children not succeed in the way that we want them to or that our children prove not to be happy in their lives in the way that we want them to be. We have prayed about this in our congregation, so I know that many of you know what it is to be disappointed when two friends of yours have marital problems that are not being resolved. And so there's another kind of disappointment. When you look around you and circumstances and people around you are not what you wish they would be. But then bringing it home, there's another kind of disappointment, the disappointment that I call shattered dreams. This does bear very much on ourselves. Not just those particular wishes or plans to have Mexican food or to get a watch for uh, Christmas. Not particular things like that. They may, in some senses, be on the periphery of our lives. But by shattered dreams, I mean disappointments that touch our fundamental aspirations. Shattered dreams because of disappointments over our basic self-conception. We can feel very bitter when we realize how we have deceived ourselves and we are not what we had hoped we were. We can have shattered dreams about what we had wanted to accomplish in this world and where we wanted to get, and it just doesn't happen. And I want to remind you, those of you who suffer from shattered dreams, that you are not alone in that, that it is the lot of the human race. And though the TV does not portray that, and you don't read of it in the newspaper day by day, and people don't come to church and just bare their souls and tell you that, the vast majority of the human race feels that kind of shattered dreams, disappointment career preparation and goals that are frustrated. You don't end up doing the thing you prepared for that you love the most. And maybe you're not doing that because you've been unfairly treated. That happens. People sometimes train for some competition 
Maybe it's a piano competition or some athletic competition. And then because of a physical injury, they're never able to make use of that training. It's wasted. Years of preparation down the tubes. There may be an unexpected failure in an important test of your intelligence or a test of your ability. And that affects your aspirations, your vocation, your life goals. Maybe you have a shattered dream because your own good nature, your view of your own good nature, has been disproven under pressure. You have found out something about yourself, and you're not happy about what you found out. You're not what you thought you should be. There are faded hopes of marriage for some people. There are faded hopes of happiness in the marriage that some people have. And we can get very sensitive about these things. Shattered dreams. But I'm going to talk to you this morning, above all, all these different kinds of disappointment, from the unfulfilled desires, through the impersonal bad news, the unrealized hopes for others, and our own shattered dreams, above all, that form of disappointment that I'd like to address this morning is that of disillusioned ideals. Disillusioned ideals. That is to say, our disappointments with respect to a perception of favored circumstances or of a favored institution or maybe of some favored people. You know, the disappointments I've talked about previously are hard to deal with. Some of them are too minor, perhaps, to worry about. But some of them are awfully hard to deal with, too. But the one that I find the hardest, above all, to cope with is disillusionment. You know, when your best and your loyal friend is found out to be a person who breaks promises. And here, the way you had looked upon this person has now got to be changed. Or it turned out that your loyal friend is talking behind your back. I mean, you you expect that of people who are not so close to you or maybe people who don't like you. But when you find out someone that you perceive to be your friend doing that, it kills you, doesn't it? My guess is it's harder to overcome that experience than it is to overcome the loss of a vocation that you had prepared for. Because that goes right to the heart of what we are and what we feel, and it hurts. You know what it is to be disillusioned? Because the working conditions that you have accepted don't really permit an advance that you were striving to achieve. You find out, I have chosen the wrong place to work. I've chosen the wrong people to work for. And I'm not going where I thought I was going. A lot of people feel disillusionment, although, you know, you have to love your country to feel this, but a lot of people feel disillusionment because their country doesn't prove to be genuinely interested in the ideals that we set forth in elementary school. It is not really interested in liberty and injustice for all. It doesn't act with integrity everywhere in the world. And when we come to that realization, that sometimes, you know, takes the heart and soul out of us. People that we admire or look up to sometimes turn out to be flawed, less than we had thought. Now, we all would acknowledge in general that there are flaws in people, no one's perfect, and yet you have a certain conception of a situation or of a person, and then when you find out that the way you were looking at that was not really the way it is, it disillusions you. We see manipulators in this world that get their way over people who we think are more kind or are more just. We see in the Church of Jesus Christ a failure to comply with the word of Christ. In fact, and this is the most disillusioning of all to me, we see in the church sometimes a lack of interest to comply with the word of God, a lack of interest to see the failings and to consider whether Scripture would show a better way. Not just the failure to live up to Scripture, but a failure to care to live up to Scripture. 
We see politics and personal power prevail in the church. We see it prevail in school. We see it prevail in the state and social groups and the organizations that we're all part of. So in this many, many ways, I think you understand what I'm talking about when I speak of disillusioned ideals. The focus this morning of our thoughts is especially upon this last kind of disappointment. Our principles will apply to all the others, to be sure, but I'd like to look especially at lost dreams and disillusionment. How do we respond to them? The natural human response, if my experience is normative at all, the natural human response, as I have observed it round about me, I think is this. Sometimes we engage in pouting and self-pity when we get disillusioned. When disappointment comes, we tend to get down in the mouth and we feel real sorry for ourselves. I'm real good at that. So if you want a lesson on self-pity, come talk to me. I've, I've had some feelings about that. Other times we get baffled. We get bewildered. I don't know. Have you ever had the experience of having some disillusioning revelation come upon you and all you can do is shake your head? You can't even come up with words to speak. All you can do is just, where do I begin to understand this and comprehend it? Put some kind of box around it so that it's, it fits into a category. I, we're just kind of bewildered. Sometimes we engage in a kind of balking response, volitional paralysis. When we get disillusioned, we just can't make up our minds to do anything. We can't move. We don't engage in any kind of activity. We just become couch potatoes, feeling that self-pity. And when someone says, we've got to make a decision, got to get up and do something, no, I, I, just can't, I just can't do that. Even worse, we sometimes respond to disillusionment and to disappointment with cynicism and a destructive attitude. You see, at least that gets us off the dime. No longer volitional paralysis, no longer a balking attitude. We're taking the ball into our own hands, and boy, we're going to beat people with it. The kind of cynical despair that says, well, nothing really counts. Our ideals can be given up. No one really amounts to anything. And I think I'll go eat some worms. And finally, there is the response of abandoning your ideals and falling into kind of a spiritual apathy. Just kind of floating along, nothing counts anymore. I really have lost what I once was enthusiastic for, the ideals that informed me as a Christian and how the world should be changed. Now, in each of these cases, whether it is a pouting or a baffled response or a balking response or a cynical response or abandoning your ideals for apathy, in each of these cases, the disappointment proves to weaken us personally, to weaken us spiritually. Because we lose our God-centeredness when this happens to us. We lose our clarity of moral vision when those things overcome us. We lose our spiritual decisiveness. We lose a passion for edification and for charity in this world. Very simply, we lose our way. We give up. And it's the easiest thing in the world to understand, indeed to, uh, to sympathize with these kinds of responses especially when the person who has shattered dreams or disillusioned ideals has to go through that a number of times. If there are a number of incidents of suffering, these sorts of things, then we really can understand why those kind of responses come upon us. But these kind of weaknesses, nevertheless, that overcome us in distress and in depression and in disillusionment, these kind of weaknesses take away our Christian perspective. They rob us of our Christian strength and in them we are falling short of the response that God wants us to have for disappointment. And the good news today 
the message and the theme of today's message is very simply that we can, indeed we should, find strength through the experience of disappointment. The world cannot understand this message. I'm glad we're not preaching this out to the general public. Many of God's people who should understand this message don't yet understand it and don't live by it. But at least you have, by the equipping of the Holy Spirit and the enlightenment of your mind, the opportunity to understand this. And it's very good news that God says, through disappointment comes strength. Weakness is the natural human reflex to disillusionment. But the supernatural response, indeed the unnatural response, the ironic reaction to disappointment, is one of perceiving God's glory and God's plan, and thereby receiving strength to live victoriously, even in the face of Satan's mischief. Strength through disappointment. The Apostle Paul, who wrote the text we read this morning, was no stranger to disappointment. He was no stranger to disillusionment. And I'd like to just do a little history on the Apostle Paul to remind you of that fact. To have you appreciate the fact the Apostle Paul was not some kind of plaster saint. He was not some kind of Pollyanna. He was not some sort of person who was removed from the kinds of things that we experience in this world that bring us down and depress us. Paul had a very tough life. Paul was not some kind of super saint who just had things going for him. And because he was such a good Christian, there was nothing but blessings and happiness, and he went to glory, probably didn't even feel death, and just went right up into heaven. That isn't true. The Apostle Paul was nowhere close to that kind of man. His experience was nothing like that at all. Paul knew what it was to feel disappointment, to feel disillusionment, even as we do. Well, we went through an anatomy of disappointment. Let's quickly cover it for Paul. Paul knew what it was to have unfulfilled desires. We don't have time this morning to read it, but you might read Romans the first chapter and Romans the 15th chapter and feel the intensity with which Paul desired to go to Rome and minister to the Christians there. And and what do we find out about Paul? He wanted to go beyond Rome to Spain. He had great hopes for spreading the gospel in the Christian church to the western part of Europe. And we know from history that he never was able to do that. He was cut short in those plans because in Rome he was executed. Paul knew what it was to have unfulfilled desires. Paul knew what it was to get bad news. We read in 2 Thessalonians 3.11, he says, We're hearing of busybodies who will not work. And now I have to give you some instruction about that. This depresses Paul. He's been commending the Thessalonians, but now he has to deal with this bad news that comes. Paul knew what it was to have unrealized hopes for others. In Acts 15.38, we read that Paul had to finally put John Mark aside and not use him in the ministry. Because John Mark did not live up to what Paul expected in a minister. Praise God, by the way, that may have changed toward the end of Paul's life, but we know it was a very dreadful situation at the time because Paul had to lose his traveling companion Barnabas over it. They disputed intensely, the Greek says, over John Mark. Paul knew what it was to have unrealized hopes for John Mark and for others, too, that we could mention. Paul knew what it was to have shattered dreams. In Ephesians 3.8, he says, and you can feel the intensity of it, that he's the least of all saints. In 1 Corinthians 15.9, that he's the least of the apostles and not worthy to be called an apostle because he persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. Paul knew what it was to have one conception of himself shattered. He was not the godly pillar of spiritual strength that he wished he was. But Paul also knew disillusioned ideals, which is the subject of of our consideration this morning. He knew what it was to be disillusioned. Think about Peter for a moment. Think about what Paul must have thought of Peter. 
In the book of Galatians, we read that it was significant to Paul that after his conversion, that he went up to Galatia—excuse me, not to Galatia—to Jerusalem, and there he met the pillars of the faith. And Peter extended him the right hand of fellowship, and that was very important to him. He looked up to Peter, and yet in Galatians chapter two, we read that Paul had to confront Peter to his face, because Peter, this one he looked up to, when he was put under pressure from the Judaizers and those of the Jewish party. Refused to have fellowship with the Gentiles. Here was this leader. Indeed, some people consider him the Pope. Here was this man of God. And yet Peter let Paul down. He knew what it was to be disillusioned with him. Think about those terrible words in 2 Timothy 4, verses 9 and 10 about Demas. Where Paul is discussing a situation and he says, Be careful to come to me quickly because Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Here was a man who was Paul's right-hand helper. And when the chips were down, Demas took off. And Paul's writing desperately to have Timothy come and be at his side because no one is here and Demas has forsaken me. Paul knew what it was to be disillusioned with people. I've already mentioned Acts 15, how he was divided from Barnabas, his traveling companion, his fellow missionary. How they couldn't agree over something and Barnabas and Paul had to go their separate ways. Paul knew disillusionment. And I want you to see these words. We won't just fly over them. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 16 to 18. Just hear what Paul says about his first trial. 2 Timothy, the fourth chapter, verse 16, Paul says, At my first defense, no one took my part, but all forsook me. May it not be laid to their account. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. The Lord will deliver me from every evil work and will save me unto his heavenly kingdom, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Boy, those are stirring words, but they're also heartbreaking words. Paul says, when I was first hauled into court, no one would stand with me. I was all alone, but God stood with me. And because of his care and providence, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about they were going to throw him into the lion's den. And at this particular point, he was saved from that. Notice Paul's strength through disappointment. At the time that looked the worst for him, everybody betraying him, having to stand all by himself, humanly speaking, Paul nevertheless learned strength because God stands with him and delivers him, and unto God belongs the glory. Paul wasn't just disillusioned about individuals, though. He's also disillusioned about churches and about things were going in churches, the way they were. Think of the Galatian church. If you'll turn in Galatians, the fourth chapter, to the 13th verse, Paul rehearses the deep affection the Galatian church had for him. And the reason why this is so hard to read is because the Galatian church was deeply into theological trouble and heresy. And Paul was having to speak very severely to the Galatian church now. He was saying, Who has bewitched you that you follow after another gospel that is not a gospel at all? What is wrong with you? What has happened to you? I've labored over you, and this is what you're doing. Look at what he says in Galatians 4.13. But you know that because of an infirmity of the flesh, I preached the gospel unto you the first time, and that which was a temptation to you in my flesh you despised not nor rejected, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Just parenthetically, what he's saying is, you know that I had some physical distress that disfigured me. And when I preached, you nevertheless received me, not in my outward appearance, but received me as a very angel from God. 
Yeah, I think we'll know what that distress was in just a minute. Verse 15, where then is that gratulation of yourselves? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. Paul says, I know the affection you had for me. And my guess is this was an eye distress, something that disfigured Paul's face. And he says, you loved me so much, you said you would pluck out your eyes that I might have them. So then, verse 16 says, Am I become your enemy by telling you the truth now? They, the Judaizers, zealously seek you in you no good. Nay, they desire to shut you out, that ye may seek them. But it is good to be zealously sought in a good manner at all times, and not only when I am present with you, my little children of whom I am again in travail until Christ be formed in you. But I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Paul knew disillusionment. The disillusionment that he saw because of, that he felt because of what he saw in the Galatian church. He says, I am perplexed that Christ be formed in you. You who would have given me your very eyes have now turned against me and you consider me your enemy because I write to you like this. Poor Paul. Paul knew his favorite church, the Philippian church to have heartbreaking circumstances in it. If you read Philippians, the second chapter and the fourth chapter in particular this afternoon, you will see how Paul loved this church, how he said, when other churches were not able to help me and didn't even look for a way to do it, you were always sending me gifts. You always supported my ministry. He calls them his little children, his dearly beloved. And yet his heart breaks because they are divided. There's this dissension in the congregation. And then finally, as an illustration, we turn to 2 Corinthians, which is what our text is this morning. That disillusionment of which I've been speaking is precisely the context out of which Paul wrote the epistle of 2 Corinthians. Paul had labored very hard in the Corinthian church. Paul had written a number of letters. By the way, just for your interest, what we call 1 Corinthians is undoubtedly the second letter Paul wrote there. And what we call 2 Corinthians is undoubtedly the fourth he had written. Because in both what we call 1st and 2nd Corinthians, there are references to previous letters he has sent. And in the second one, it's not a reference to the first one that we have in our canon. So we know that Paul wrote to him four times. Paul speaks of a trip to Corinth that he made, a sorrowful trip that Luke doesn't even record in the book of Acts. Paul labored hard for the Corinthians. He loved them. But now his very apostolic credentials were being called into question. And the church was walking in an undisciplined fashion. And Paul has to write 2 Corinthians. I want you to notice the way in which he writes to them and the problems that they're undergoing. First, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4. There Paul says, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote unto you with many tears, not that you should be made sorry, but that you might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. In 2 Corinthians 12, at the 11th verse, Paul says, I am become foolish, you compelled me, for I ought to have been commended of you, for in nothing was I behind the very chiefest apostles, though I am nothing. Truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience, by signs and wonders and mighty works. For what is there wherein you were made inferior to the rest of the churches? Except it be that I myself was not a burden to you. Forgive me this wrong. That's tongue in cheek. Paul says, forgive me for not imposing on you like the false teachers are doing to you now. Behold, this is the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden to you. For I seek not yours, but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. See, he says, I'm your spiritual father. 
and I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more abundantly, am I loved the less? But be it so, I did not myself burden you, but being crafty, I caught you with guile. Did I take advantage of you by any one of them whom I have sent unto you? I exhorted Titus, and I sent the brother with him. Did Titus take any advantage of you? Walked we not in the same spirit? Walked we not in the same steps? Paul says, why are you treating me this way? What is it I did except try to build you up in Christ and teach you the truth? Why are you responding in this way? And so you see the context out of which he writes. Paul is afraid that he will find the Corinthian believers not such as I would like. Verses 19 and 20. You think all this time that we are excusing ourselves unto you? In the sight of God speak we in Christ, but all things, beloved, are for your edifying. For I fear, lest by any means when I come, I should find you not such as I would. Paul says, you know what perplexes me? You know what I'm afraid of? You know what has disappointed me? I'm afraid that when I come to you, you won't be what I expect you to be. The work of the church was being threatened. People for whom Paul had labored very hard and at no cost were abandoning him and abandoning the truth and living riotously. And my guess is if Paul is anything like me, he must have wanted to quit the ministry. Paul must have at that point been saying, haven't I had enough? Why this now? But instead, instead of that, in the face of disillusionment with individuals, in the face of disillusionment in the churches of Galatia and Philippi and now at Corinth, instead we see the words that we read this morning in our scripture passage, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the exceeding greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. Clay jars. Paul says we hold this glory in clay jars and there's a reason for that. There's a reason why God has put the abundance of the glory of the gospel and the ministry in such weak and fragile containers that the abundant, exceeding greatness of the power will be seen to be of God and not of ourselves. Let's look at five responses that Paul gives to disillusionment here very quickly. Five responses to disillusioning, disappointing experiences. First of all, in 2 Corinthians 4.8, Paul says, Perplexed, but not unto despair. Perplexed, but not unto despair. We are pressed on every side, yet not straightened. Perplexed, yet not unto despair. As the problems and the opposition close in on Paul from all sides, he admits to becoming perplexed. He's a man like you and me. He knows what it is to be disappointed and confused and upset over what's going on. He is perplexed, he says, however, never, ever to the point of hopeless despair. To be at the end of his own resources, Paul knows, is not to be at the end of God's. He may be confused, but he's not confounded. He may be depressed, but he's not crushed. Perplexed, yes. In despair, never. And so from the Apostle Paul we learn we need to control our emotions, something that's hard for me to do when I get disillusioned. It seems like everything falls apart then. But when you get disillusioned, control your emotions and live the life of faith. Living the life of faith does not mean, if I can use the expression again, whistling in the dark. Hey, nothing hurts, everything's okay. No, Paul says, I am perplexed. Yes, be perplexed, but not unto despair, not to the point of driving you down. Live in faith toward God, because with God there is no room for despair. 
And we'll see why in a few moments. So Paul says, first, he's perplexed, but not to the point of despairing. Secondly, in verse 16, he says, we faint not. When he's disillusioned, when things are going wrong all around him, when people are letting him down and the congregation's not living up to what it should be, he says, we faint not. Verse 16, Wherefore we faint not, but though our outward man is decaying, yet our inward man is renewed day by day. Look at verse 1 of this chapter that we haven't read. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, even as we have obtained mercy, we faint not. Paul says there's no room for falling back, no room for volitional paralysis, no room for balking, no room for weakness. We aren't going to be wimps about this, Paul says. We're not going to faint. Perplexed, yes. Despairing, no. And we will not faint. For God will give us the victory. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 57 and 58, God always leads us in victory. And therefore, be always abounding in the work of the Lord, because Paul says, you know that your labor is not vain in the Lord. It is not futile. It's not for nothing. God makes use of it. And no matter who lets you down, no matter how things don't turn out to be the way they should, you as an individual... And you as the church corporate will not fail. God always leads us in victory, so we faint not. Thirdly, Paul says in verse 17, Our light affliction works a far exceeding weight of glory. Verse 17, For our light affliction, which is for the moment, works for us more and more exceedingly an eternal weight of glory. Paul was confident that the affliction through which he was going was nevertheless God's stepping stone to a much more powerful situation. It was God's stepping stone to showing his power and his glory in Paul's ministry. And he said this glory will be an eternal glory. What we temporarily now in history go through is light by comparison in its affliction to the great glory that will be ours. Now how do you live that way? Again, the world can understand that. Only God's people can. And only God's people who believe in the predestinating sovereignty of God can live that way. And the reason for it is Paul got this strength from what he said in Romans 8.28. For we know that to those who love God and are called according to his purpose, all things work together for good. Notice that? Confidence in the sovereign plan of God. And not just confidence that everything fits into God's plan, but confidence that that plan is for our good. That's the second step, you know. Some people can, in a stoic way, resign themselves and say, well, God planned it, I have to put up with it. Paul doesn't say you've got to put up with it. He says everything happens by God's plan, and therefore it's for your good. You need to be confident that whatever God works out in history, he's working out for your good and his glory. You know, you can't believe that by looking around you. You cannot believe that in terms of human categories of thought and evaluation. You will never come to that conclusion if you're empirical about this. Because when you look around you, what you see is that reason for disillusionment. You see those shattered dreams. You see those disappointments. But what we should see is the plan of God and the hand of God and say it's for our good. And we trust him. We know that our light affliction will work in us a far exceeding weight of glory for all eternity. Fourthly, would you notice that Paul says in verse 18, we look not at temporal, visible things, but rather at eternal while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Very simply put, what Paul says is, don't look at the physical circumstances around you and let that guide your emotions. Don't give up your ideals. Don't become earthbound and cynical. 
And I think I really am touching some souls this morning when I say that because that's our tendency, isn't it? Our tendency is to look at what's going on around us and just give up all our ideals and say, it really means nothing. Nothing really counts. People don't turn out to be what they're supposed to be. The church doesn't act the way it's supposed to be. This institution doesn't live by its principles. I just give up. Paul says, but we don't look at earthly things which are temporal and pass away. We keep our eyes fixed on eternal matters. We keep our eyes fixed on those things which are of value in the sight of God. We keep our eyes fixed on the Savior Jesus Christ. We faint not. We keep our ideals. Our light affliction will work a greater glory in eternity. And we will not be perplexed to the point of despair. And then finally, clay pots. That very first verse, Paul says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Why? That the exceeding greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. Clay jars accentuate the value and the brilliance of the treasure that they hold. The treasure, by the way, is found in verse 6. Seeing it is God that said, Light shall shine out of darkness who shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what we have as New Covenant believers. And he says in the very next verse, and we have this treasure in clay jars. Isn't that amazing? The most brilliant, the most glorious gift that God could give anyone is held in clay jars. The reason for that is that God's splendor is all the more apparent when it works through poor vessels such as we are. Indeed, the, the contrast is striking between the greatness of the divine glory that is ours and the frailty and the unworthiness of the vessels in which it dwells and through which the glory of God will be manifested to the world. The discrepancy between the treasure and the vessel that holds the treasure serves to do what? To underscore the fact that human weakness, human weakness and failure is no barrier to the purposes of an almighty God. When we are disillusioned or disappointed in others, when we are disillusioned or disappointed in circumstances or in institutions, then we become keenly aware that the good that exists in any of us, the good that exists in any institution, exists only because of God's work and must be seen as a real sign then of God's power. When we see the frailty and the inadequacy all about us, we're thrown completely upon God, knowing that whatever treasure we enjoy, as Paul says, is not from ourselves. Church Father Ambrose, who, by the way, was significant in the conversion of Augustine. Ambrose wrote of this verse, By speaking of earthen vessels, Paul signifies the infirmity of human nature, which can do nothing unless it has received strength from God. And God proclaims himself to his own praise through those that are weak, in order that the glory may be given to him, not to man who is formed from clay. Beautiful words. He shows the infirmity of human nature, so that the praise will belong to God. If disappointment brings us to the feet of an all-sufficient Savior, then it will prove to strengthen us with a divine power that knows no limitation, that knows no inadequacy. Our deficiencies, very simply, will become God's opportunities. Our disappointments will become open doors for God's all-sufficiency to show itself at work in us and through us to the baffling dismay of the world and the natural man. We can, as Christians, nevertheless rejoice in weakness because we anticipate the work of God's power through it. This emphasis is found throughout the book of 2 Corinthians. It's found in the first chapter, in the fourth chapter that we've just read. It's found in the sixth chapter, in the eleventh chapter, and finally, it reaches its epitome in the twelfth chapter 
Well, above all, Paul makes this point in verses 7 to 10, a passage that um, sticks very close to me because I remember how emotional I received it when Elder Andrus came to my hospital room and read it to me during my recent surgery and recovery. Paul says, And by reason of the exceeding greatness of the revelations, that I should not be exalted over much, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, that I should not be exalted over much. Concerning this thing I besought the Lord three times, that it might depart from me. And he hath said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Wherefore, I take pleasure in weaknesses, in injuries, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Disappointing times show the all-sufficiency of God. He said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Disappointing times make the power of God perfect because they help us to realize our own weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And therefore, disappointing and disillusioning times find us to be weak and yet paradoxically strong. For when I am weak, then am I strong. That's why God puts his gospel in clay pots. That's why God entrusts the glory of the good news in the face of Jesus Christ to people like you and me who are so frail and so inconsistent and so often will let people down because he wants the far exceeding glory and power to be his. He wants us to know that our deficiencies become his opportunities because when we become weak, when we become disillusioned, we're then at the point to see what our all-sufficient strength and power really are. In a truly Christian perspective, then, disappointment, disillusionment, is soil from which strength blossoms and grows, whether for us individually or for us as a church corporately. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and confess that in many ways, we, like Paul, are perplexed. We would pray that we would also have the strength that Paul had to say, yet not unto despair. We are pressed down, but not broken. That we do not faint. We do not draw back. We do not take our eyes off of eternal and heavenly truths and values and ideals. We do not take our eyes off the Savior to look at temporal and fading things about us. Lord, we ask that you would strengthen us by your Spirit in this way and give us the faith that Paul demonstrated to know that all things work together for good, that everything that happens, even the disappointing things that happen to us, happen by your plan, and that your plan's a good one. It intends good for us and will build up your church and strengthen your kingdom. And above all, we pray that you would remind us ever of that expression, clay jars, because we are that. We are frail. We are weak, not just physically, but emotionally and socially and psychologically. And in so many ways, we are weak, poor, inadequate vessels. And yet somehow you, by your ironic supernatural grace, choose to put the treasure of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ in us. 
and through us to communicate it to the world. Lord, this morning, remind us of who we are and of what we are made, that the exceeding glory might belong to you. Remind us that our weakness is your strength, and that therefore we have reason to be encouraged and not despairing. For we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, who knew victory through death. In his name, amen.